Welcome to episode 55, HIPAA Security Fundamentals for Mental Health Professionals in Private Practice, featuring Roy Huggins, Licensed Professional Counselor, from Clearly Clinical, Learn, Grow, Shine. Hello, and thank you for listening today. I am delighted to introduce Roy Huggins. Uh, Roy is a licensed professional counselor and national certified counselor. He will be joining us today to talk about HIPAA and its implementation and some compliance issues. He is a former software engineer. Uh, He also serves on the Zur Institute Advisory Board. He is, in general, an expert on ethics, and he teaches at Portland State. He has been both an invited and paid consultant for licensing boards and professional associations, and he also serves as an expert witness on issues of privacy and confidentiality. Um, Thank you for joining us today, Roy. We are grateful to hear from you. Oh, thanks for having me. So let's let's first start by talking a little bit about HIPAA. Um, What does HIPAA stand for? (laughs) <laughs> it's the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. You're just test. That's like an important test of whether I know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a first first part. Thank you for for bringing us your expertise on this. And I know a lot of people have questions <laughs> yeah. about HIPAA and mm-hmm. how it works in the real world, how we use it, how we implement it, and what it really means because it has so much overlap with privacy and confidentiality. So yeah. please. Um, how do you describe HIPAA to mental health professionals? Yeah, so the way I'll describe it is that HIPAA is, it's a kind of a mishmash because it was designed for what it stands for, right? Health insurance, portability, and accountability. Uh, so it's uh, it's kind of funny because it was originally enacted in order to improve basically the efficiency of American healthcare payment, um, and so, of course, by, you know, and the, the idea was to use the Internet to help do that. And we all are doing that now. We use insurance clearinghouses to do billing and stuff such like that. And so that's where HIPAA was designed for. But then it became the regulation for how to enforce privacy and security in healthcare in general, uh, and along with those original intentions of, of standardizing health insurance. Uh, so it's kind of this is just some wacky things about how it functions because of that. Uh, but what's important is if you have to comply with HIPAA, uh, which is not everybody, not just because you're healthcare, but that's another question, right? Um, <clears throat> if you have to comply with HIPAA, you have to follow the privacy and security rules uh, everywhere throughout your practice, like not just in health insurance. And that's the point where people get confused, um, even though it relates to billing insurance. Tell me about what makes a person uh, a HIPAA covered entity and how someone knows whether or not that includes them. Yeah, so it's the thing that makes you covered is this. Con- the wording confuses people, um, but the wording from the the rule, and I don't say the law. I mean, it is a law, but it's really the rule. It's the administrative rule. Um, says that the you're covered by HIPAA, you're a covered entity if you conduct the transactions that it covers. HIPAA, the word "cover" gets used way too much, by the way. Um, it, HIPAA covers a bunch of transactions. It calls them, and if you do any of those transactions electronically only electronically, then you're a covered entity. And that's, you know, we just added more confusion by saying that, right? Um, And people have just gotten super confused by that. If you go look at what those transactions are, like that's what you got to do. Like, what do they mean by this? There's a section of HIPAA called the transaction rule. And in that rule, it describes a bunch of things you can do. And all of them are essentially related to uh, insurance billing or using an insurance clearinghouse. So they're all related to like things like... um, uh, seeing if someone has benefits or, you know, sending in a claim or various things that you would do through your, um, your practice management system that does insurance billing or when you use like Office Ally or any of the things you do to use the electronic insurance billing system through a clearinghouse or directly with the insurance company. If you any, do any of those things electronically, you're covered by HIPAA. If you don't, but the definition says you're not covered and you can actually go, the, the, the feds have a neat little actually like a PowerPoint that you can like click through uh, for like a flow chart to determine if you're covered or not. Uh, and it pretty clearly states pretty much exactly what I just said. 
So your advice for these professionals is to really know that they actually have to be covered. And I've heard in my world kind of this question of whether or not HIPAA will eventually simply become the standard of, of care with HIPAA compliance. Um, I'm curious your opinion I'm, on that. I, I think it is the standard of care. Um, the and re, But the thing you got to remember, that that's another point that uh, I think we need to understand what we're saying in, in, in detail. Because standard of care is a jargon term, right? It's not. It's not a vague term. Um, well, it's more vague than a than HIPAA is. But <laughs> like the uh, uh, so okay. So you know, I work with Ofrazer, right? And he has a really great way of defining this. <clears throat> and and, and uh, you know, before I tell you this, I should make sure everyone knows. Uh, Doctor Zer has been like a forensic witness for lots of board cases for decades. Right. So he's argued this legal definition of standard of care a bazillion times. Right. Just to make sure we know where we're coming from with this. And he, he even points out that standard of care is, as he puts it, a C plus standard. Right. So standard of care is not actually um, it's not aspirational. Right. Standard of care is not something that's like you're doing the best. Even best practices isn't necessarily standard of care. Right. Best practices could be higher than standard of care. So when we say HIPAA is standard of care, you got to remember um, that's not going to mean uh, the same as like the same as complying with HIPAA. So if I so for example, I am not covered by HIPAA in my practice. My practice as an organization does not do the covered transactions. I am not covered by HIPAA. I'm not a HIPAA covered entity. So in my practice, I do not have to comply with HIPAA, but I largely do. Right, I regard the standards of HIPAA as the standards for standard of care, kind of like I would an ethics code. And so that means that there are some differences in what I do from what a covered entity has to do, because I don't have to do them. I just have to meet them as a standard, as an, like an ethical standard or a professional standard. Um, so there are some things I do and don't do because I achieve the same effect a different way. Right now, if you're covered by HIPAA, you have to do it the way HIPAA describes, because the law says you have to comply with its rules, and that's the main difference, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, thank you for clarifying that, and I think that the point about standard yeah. of care versus best practices is a great one um, for our listeners. Roy, why don't you tell us kind of more about your background beyond the little intro that I gave? But tell us how you came to acquire this knowledge and and how you use it. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, okay. So <clears throat> as you said, I, I used to be like a web developer. I was a software engineer. Um, I should probably point out that like web developer these days means something different than it did in 1999 when I did that. Um, and like through the early aughts, I was doing that. And so, you know, I had to, I wrote software that directly engages with banks to charge credit cards and make sure they're secure and um, wrote software that creates and receives emails and like so i was doing a lot of work directly with networks not not the physical networking that's a different thing but i mean software that does that and um so then i you know i was like that actually wasn't really for me i wanted to be a counselor but of course once you're a geek you can't escape that's just how it works and so when i finished school and got into my first private practice uh i actually had a client and remember so remember this is 2010 this matters a lot because things have changed a lot since then uh, I had a client who, um, for her, um, a big part of what she needed to do in order to communicate with others was to be able to uh, do it on her phone, right? For her, it was uh, very difficult to sit in a room and directly tell me, this is what I'm feeling, right? And this is why. Uh, she would do things, she would, we would have a hard time being able to talk about things during session, although she clearly wanted to get help. She really wanted to engage, right, and get help. Um, and uh, I would get a long, 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 long text after the session talking about, um, you know, what had just happened. And, uh, and I was, you know, so I'd ask her in the next session, like, what's going on? Why are we texting? And she explained, you know, I'm still a pretty new therapist. I'm not getting this stuff very well yet. Right. Um, but then I realized I'm like, well, I mean, that's how, if that's the way she needs to communicate, I need to figure this out. Like, I have to figure out how to help her. Right. And uh, I was worried because I had done a lot of programming involving networks. I know what is secure and not about texting. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm sitting here being like, that's just that's an SMS text message. Are you sure that's how you want to communicate with me? Like that's open to all and sundry on the network. Like that's not a secure way to connect. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I'm, of course, you know, a new counselor being like, ah, confidentiality, confidentiality. I got to do confidentiality. And um, 
And she's like, it's what I do. It's how I, it's, I need it. I need this. And you got to understand, this is 2010. We didn't have, like, I think I had a smartphone, but it was a really early iPhone, right? And uh, yeah, I had a smartphone, but she definitely did not. And she wouldn't have had the money for one. And the um, so there was no way, there was, even if we if she did a smartphone, there wasn't like a secure texting thing yet that wasn't around yet, right? So this is really what we had. I had to figure it out. I had to try to understand, like, what are the standards around this? Because in grad school, I learned about confidentiality. I learned about privacy. I can apply my technical understanding to those ethical principles. But then my, yeah, I didn't really know what to do with what I understood about it. Because to me, I'm like, well, what I come to understand is this is not confidential. This is equivalent to doing our therapy session in the park, right? And uh, so I'm like, maybe I should just not do that. So that drove me to study it more and make sure I understood HIPAA, which at that point I learned was what I needed to learn about, right? That's what I really needed to get my standards from. Um, and uh, I figured out, and actually at that time, HIPAA, it was not clear whether HIPAA allowed that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't clarified until the 2013 update that actually what I was doing was fine. Um, but I went ahead with just what the person needed and just made sure she knew what the risks were and that we had those risks covered as best we could and we moved forward. And like, but since then, I've just been being like, okay, I have to learn more about this. Got it. So for you, it came out of a, a practical need of of wanting to ethically and legally comply and figure out a way to do that in a way that was user friendly and met this client's needs. Um, and and from there, yeah. you was, yeah. you came up with right. a system basically. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was it was all, it was really was driven by needing to be able to help a client, and I that's the thing I realized that I mean that's the case for solo practitioners everywhere. I mean, most of the time it's wanting to be able to run their practice efficiently and or help clients. That's really where people start to approach this from. Got it. So, Roy, tell me about your work now. What do you do um, professionally? Yeah, so now I'm and I still I'm still a counselor. I have a like one or two day a week practice, depending on which week it is. Um, but also I direct person-centered tech, which is sort of my full-time day job. Um, and we're a company that provides continuing education and consulting uh, and training programs um, to, and also a lot of tools uh, to help people with, um, with partly with, I mean, HIPAA compliance is a central thing we do, HIPAA security compliance, but also just getting their tech in order in a way that is effective and ethical and helps them and helps clients and also helps them stay within standards of care and legal compliance rules. Gotcha. So, so our conversation day is really an extension of what you do. And this is com completely in your wheelhouse. This is something you, you can do in your sleep, I imagine. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And unfortunately, I do do it in my sleep. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, yeah. tell me about the HIPAA rules that are really relevant for our listeners today, they're in either solo or group practices and what they definitely need to know and understand. Right. Great. Okay. So the big things you need to know, there's two big rules that get talked about all the time and for good reason. One is the privacy rule. The other is the security rule. The privacy rule is probably what most people learn about uh, regarding HIPAA in grad school or following grad school. If you're in grad school now, you may be learning about the security rule, but most programs still aren't doing that. Um, I, I'll talk another time about why not. Um, privacy rule. So privacy is about principles of uh, how information is exposed or not exposed, generally according to the desires of the client. Um, there is, you know, privacy tells us things like things that we and I actually take for granted because it's part of our professionalism, independent of HIPAA. It tells us things like, here I am on a podcast. I'm not going to tell you the names of my clients. I'm not going to tell you their diagnoses along with something that can identify them. Right. Like the story I just told about a client, you know, I, I asked that client permission to tell that story, you know, like, but I don't identify who that person is. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, all of that is stuff we learn just ethically, but it's also in the privacy rule. It's in there, too. And so back when we weren't using a lot of digital tech in our practices, we didn't pay a lot of attention to the privacy rule because our professional standards were usually tighter anyways. Uh, mostly from the, the thing we got from the privacy rule is. Uh, a lot of us hand our clients the notice of privacy practices, which people often call the HIPAA form. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not its real name. <laughs> its real name <laughs> is the notice of privacy practices, right? The NPP. That's from the privacy rule. Uh, also, we know things like if you need to leave a message on someone's voicemail, 
you should be minimal. Like you don't ramble about things. Like you just say the minimum necessary. And we can argue a lot about what minimum necessary means. That's a big argument. But whatever it means, it comes from the privacy rule. Right. Uh, also, the privacy rule is a part of HIPAA that defines that you are required by that law to give clients copies of their records if they request them. Release of records is, in my experience, the biggest privacy rule element that therapists struggle with because we don't like to release records classically. Um, so I, I know I'm teaching my students to think of records as something that they should assume the client's going to read. They should start thinking of them as kind of open to the client. Uh, because that's the direction things are going. And it's going in that direction because that's what HIPAA says, right? You know, if someone wants to see their records, you need to give them to them. Um, that's, that, I think, is actually the biggest thing we struggle with from the privacy rule. The rest of it uh, is usually kind of in our wheelhouse anyways, right? It's maybe some variation on things, but it's largely just a variation on stuff we already do. So you're the saying... security rule, that's where people struggle. Yeah. So for yeah, you, it's, the privacy rule is really working in line with whatever guidelines we're getting from our code of ethics, whether that's for substance counselors or for psychologists. Mm -hmm. In a lot of aspects, there's a lot of overlap. And it sounds like the security rule is where things really kind of split off from the ethical codes that we might already be complying with. Uh, yeah, or where it uh, expands on is what I should say. Like a security rule expands on that is what I, I would actually, that's how I'd frame it. Um, although I do want to... Um, comment on something you just said. I know you're just throwing it out there, but I should say it because you said addictions counselors. Mm. Um, it's important to note that in a lot of addiction treatment places like centers or practices, depending on how they're funded, uh, they may also be subject to another law, which is not HIPAA, called 42 CFR Part 2. Yes, indeed. Uh, and that one actually has... Ex yeah, you're probably familiar with that. That has extra privacy protections that go beyond what even our ethics do. But that's a different... That's a different podcast. That is a different right? podcast. And <laughs> right. we actually have that podcast that talks about right. the difference between HIPAA and CFR 42 Part 2. Oh, good. So thank you for bringing that well, up. And if our check that one out, are guys. curious <laughs> about that, go You're check welcome. that one out. <laughs> so, so tell okay, us about awesome. the security rule. Tell us more about, about that and the other components yeah. um, related to I'd it. I'd love to. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, that's my wheelhouse. That's my big wheelhouse is the, the security rule because I'm a tech guy. Right. So uh, so the security rule is the tech part of HIPAA. The security rule defines the standards you have to follow for keeping information secure. Right. Like, duh, the, the way it said. Right. But that matters because security is logistics of how you do stuff. Privacy is about what is the policy? What's supposed to be private? How do we manage it? Like, what are people's rights? What are our responsibilities? Security is how you do that logistically, like what is it you do to uphold whatever those policies are, right? So for example, if I asked you, I'll, I'll do the little game with me, Elizabeth. I like to do this little demo. So like, let's pretend I'm calling you directly and I'm going to ask about somebody named Sam Smith and Sam Smith is not your client. You don't know a Sam Smith, right? So I call you and I say, hey, I'm Sam Smith's brother Can and um He's, I'm supposed to pick him up from your office today, but I'm not going to be able to. Can you let him know that? Uh, his phone's dead and I can't I can't get in touch with him. Mm. Like, how do you answer that? So you, what, what we're normally trained to say is something to the effect of, thank you for your call. I can neither confirm nor deny whether or not that person is part of my practice. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's the Glomar response. You know, the, <laughs> the global marine oil rig, whatever. We can neither confirm nor deny the Glomar. Yeah, like it's that's what that is. And that's totally what we're trained to do, right? And so we're trained to do that because that's a that is a security policy, right? There are privacy reasons, which is protecting the people who are our clients or from like a, a process of elimination way of identifying who our clients are. Uh, also from protecting other people's clients. It also has that effect from those privacy violations, right? The privacy violation would be identifying the client. The security process is not talking about clients, mm. right? It's a behavioral process that we do logistically. And so we actually then come up with little, even more fine, like just concrete things like saying, I can either confirm or deny. Although usually what we say is, sorry, I can't talk about clients or something like that, right? <laughs> like, mine like is, that's what we actually say. Mine is very formal. <laughs> right? but like, that's what <laughs> that's what we're taught in ethics in ethics classes yeah? is, is very very formal. But oh. but no, I completely agree with oh, you. Yeah. I can't 
it's it's difficult. I, I was actually watching a TV show just the other day that's, you know, of course, completely violated all privacy. But so the person said directly, you know, like, I can't talk about that person, right. you know, because she's my client. I'm like, no. <laughs> no, you don't say that. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Oh, God. Yeah, that's not so good. But yeah, yeah, I actually, in, in my ethics class, when I teach confidentiality, I get a picture of the global marine and I talk about can't firm or deny and I do a whole game out of it because I love it. But the, but I'm a nerd about confidentiality. So I love that part. Of right? course. <laughs> so like, um, but, 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 but so that's, that's an ex- example of both privacy and security happening together, right? Like we're thinking about the privacy, meaning this person is not supposed to hear about who my clients are. Right, any identity of any clients. So, in order to protect that, I have this technique wherein, or this policy or procedure, wherein I don't talk about them, and I and I refuse, I stonewall, right, to talk about clients. That's the security, the stonewalling, that policy of stonewalling when someone wants to talk about clients. That's the the security piece, right? So that and that's a piece we learn all the time. Another security piece we learned in ethics and have for a long time is the double lock standard. You know, you lock the cabinet and put the cabinet in a locked room, right? That's your double lock. That's our oldest security standard other than, you know, the policies around who we talk about and who we don't talk about. Um, Now, HIPAA comes in and says, okay, okay, therapists, you're all using your electronic records and you're emailing and doing all kinds of stuff where uh, you're, there's a lot of security issues that need to be covered. So we're going to cover them. And you're going to have to follow those standards. You're, you're going to have to do the things we tell you are necessary to maintain the security information that you're putting into the electronic world, whether it's on your own devices, like your computer or phone, or whether it's on the big worldwide network called the internet, right? Or if it's on someone else's devices, like with a cloud service, you know, that's me putting my information on someone else's computer. So the security rule says you have to cover these things. Uh, and then there are two other rules that are technically separate, but are very related, which is the business associate rule, which says if you're going to put that information on someone else's computers, or if you're just going to let another person who's not part of your practice handle client info for you, you have to get these special agreements with them called business associate agreements. And those are the agreements that say that that third party that isn't under your control, even though they're not under your control, they are going to live up to your standards because otherwise it's on you when they have a breach. Uh, and by the way, you even letting them handle the information in the first place is a breach, right? If you don't do the business associate agreement, right? Because without that, they're they're an external party. They're not authorized to get the info. You disclose it to them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the other one is the, the um, yeah, the breach notification rule, which if you do have a data breach or you think you might have a data breach, you got to follow the standards of that rule. That's the rule that defines what you got to do in response. Right. And those are the main ones we need to know. Privacy and security, that's our bread and butter. Definitely business associate rule. It's related to both of those rules, but you know, I tend we tend to think of it as associated with the security rule, though it's technically its own rule. Uh, and breach notification. Breach notification hopefully doesn't come up for you. I'm not the wood. <laughs> right. But the nice thing is, or the thing is you should know what it is. If you don't know what it is and how it works, it'll be very difficult to prevent it coming up. All right, so you got to know how it works in order to prevent it. Very. And those are our main rules. Um, and now you know everything yeah, about HIPAA. Now we're done. Um, yeah. Very good points. So we have privacy, security, now business associate, and then breach notification. How does a solo practitioner uh, comply with these right. things? Yeah, it's hard. I'll tell you. So full compliance for a solo practitioner can be hard. I'm gonna just go ahead and say that. Um, the so there's a I, for a solo practice. Here's I'll talk about like what I talk about the kind of two levels of hippiness, right? One is compliance. The other is just not getting in trouble, right? So like the not getting in trouble level, I think has more to do with um, complying with what I kind of call the um, the kind of external standards of the security rule, uh, and that means like. When you go and choose services you're going to use, because we use a lot of services, right? We use email, we use fax services, we use record keeping services, we use texting services, we use phone services. Uh, we can go on, we can use video conferencing services if we're doing online therapy. Um, a big thing that I've noticed with solo practices is when we're in a solo practice, we don't tend to think of our practice as like a business or organization, right? Because it's, you know, it's one person just practicing, you know, it doesn't. 
It's not so weird that we don't think of it that way. Um, but because we don't think of it that way, we don't think about our systems in a uh, rigorous, structured way. You know, we just start acquiring services without thinking a lot about what they are or how they fit into our practice. By the way, that has a side effect of also making your practice less efficient, just FYI. Um, but uh, the, the main effect is that we're not thinking about how all of our services fit into each other. Right? So I've got an email service. I've got a phone service. I've got record keeping. I've got texting. I've got all these different things. Maybe most of them are rolled up into a practice management system. Maybe there are lots of different services. If I'm not looking at them holistically, then I'm going to miss how many places I'm putting client information. You know, Think of it like storing a folder full of client records right? in someone else's system somewhere, someone else's computers. Maybe it's my phone service. Maybe they have a bunch of my stuff. Maybe it's my email. They have a bunch of my stuff. I need to have business associate agreements with all of those services. And I need to be using them in a way that ensures that I'm not exposing client information in the process. Because uh, part of the problem is that we have is things like someone may, may follow our advice and go get an email service that does business associate agreements. The most common thing, because we, we love to talk about it, is G Suite, Google's G Suite. Um, you can get a business associate agreement. It costs, for a solo practice, you, you really just need the, the lowest tier of service. It's about $6 a month. Uh, and you get like all the Google apps, like almost all of them are covered by your business associate agreement. It's wonderful. Um, and then people go and use the email and they send emails off to clients figuring, oh, it must be secure because I have a business associate agreement. But in fact, it's just an ordinary email. You know, it's still not necessarily a secure email you're sending. And so you have to think about how am I doing email properly? Like, is it actually appropriate for me to use an unsecure email with this client? Um, it is a, It is okay. You have covered one piece where the service you're using to send the email is one that's legal for you to use. You know, you're using G Suite with a business associate agreement. It's legal to do that part. But once the email exits Google servers and goes out into the internet, it may not be a secure email at all. And so if that's not covered, if you haven't made sure you're, you're covering that piece, uh, then you know, you're violating HIPAA, right? So what I'm getting at there is to say, you want to make sure you're using services, like choosing them, and then using them in ways that cover all your HIPAA bases so you don't create violations. And I'm going to say that piece again. You're choosing them and using them in ways that ensure that you don't create violations, now, that also applies to how you secure your personal devices, you know, the ones you're using in your practice, I should, I should say. Like I, in my case, in my practice, I use my iPhone, my MacBook. Um, I have a flip phone that I use for my actual voice calls. Uh, I have a Wi-Fi hotspot. It's a cellular hotspot. And that's all of the electronic equipment used in my practice. All of them are what we call hardened, which is not a very fun word for therapists to think about, hardening. Um, but it's basically just means I've done, I've turned on all the bells and whistles that ensure that these things are, uh, are engaging their most, their best security practices. Uh, and I have good behavioral security practices. Like I don't let my phone or my smartphone or my computer sit somewhere where I'm not watching it. You know, it gets locked up. Um, I don't lend them out to people and I never connect to Wi-Fi unless I know it's been secured. And I don't just mean it has a lock icon. I mean, it's actually like physically secure. And that's why I have a cellular hotspot that I carry with me that lets me connect my phone or my computer to something that has a strong internet connection that I know is secure because it's my own, right? It happens through my cellular service. And that's part of how I harden. And that whole process, everything I just described, would get you that sort of level one of what I call it, like the first tier where you're not creating violations. It's not the same as being compliant with HIPAA because there's other processes, but at least you're not creating violations. And for any solo practitioner, everything I just described is completely achievable. Like everyone can do all the things I just described, right? For some people, it may take a lot of energy and effort because they may, may be going kind of from zero to learning how to do all that, but it is achievable, right? For others, it may be much easier if they feel confident with tech, with technology. Now, actually complying with HIPAA, though, requires a process called uh, security risk analysis, which is kind of a technical process, although uh, certainly therapists can do it if they're willing to really like, kind of step out of their comfort zone. It's a doable thing. It's just out of the usual comfort zone. 
Um, and you have to have a manual, like an actual set of security policies and procedures. Um, and those are the, the, the bits that uh, a lot of solo practitioners really balk at and really have a hard time with. Um, and I'll say, like, you're not in compliance with HIPAA until you have all those things. But that first set of things, you know, choosing and using services properly, hardening your devices, making sure your behaviors support the security in the to the HIPAA standards, um, you doing that will help ensure that you're not creating HIPAA violations, which may be enough or may not be enough, depending on, you know, what kind of risks you're facing, right? But to be compliant, you need to do all that and that security risk analysis and have those policies. Got and it. Procedures. And so that's for solo practitioners. How does it differ for group practices? So with a group practice, I do not recommend you try to operate without being compliant. So for a group practice, so here's the thing about group practices. Um, there's a there's a qualitative difference in my experience between a solo practice and a group practice that's got two people. <laughs> right, you add basically suddenly you're 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 having a, a system of people. It's kind of like the difference between doing individual therapy and couples therapy, right? It's not like plus one person; it's times two people, right? Um, the the complexity of the system you're interacting with increases, right? That's just like with couples therapy. It's the same thing with managing your compliance and security. So now suddenly, um, someone you know someone's running this show. Ostensibly, it's you right? If you're listening to this and now suddenly you need to make sure that everyone who works for the practice does not violate HIPAA for the practice. And this is a bit that we realize um, a lot of therapists, especially us, you know, mental health professionals of all the professions, uh, we have a tendency to struggle with because we learn in school to be personally responsible for everything. And that's good, right? We're professionals. We're supposed to take on personal responsibility. We have ethics. We have legal responsibilities. And the, the downside I've seen is for, for mental health professionals who don't go through the agency thing, who don't spend a lot of time in agencies or, or other places where they work in a team or a group, uh, where the ones tend to go right to private practice uh, or who, who have been in private practice for a long time, we tend to think of our responsibilities as just ours. And also to think of the consequences as just ours. And that's where groups get messed up because the, a lot of group leaders will form their group um, on the assumption that all the clinicians are personally responsible and personally liable. And that's not the case. What happens is everyone who works for a practice, errors they make or even purposeful things they do, which violate HIPAA, will violate HIPAA for the practice, not for them individually. Right? So the practice, the organization has to comply with HIPAA. And so as soon as you have to rely on other people not to mess with it, now we're in a greater complexity. Right? You need to do all the things I just described. All the stuff for the solo practice, that's all the standards of HIPAA. You need to do all the same things. You know, Choose and use the services properly. Harden your devices. Do a risk analysis. Have policies and procedures. But now imagine that all of these things apply to everybody, not just you. So in other words, if, if somebody messes up, it's not just themselves, not just their own neck on the line. In my solo practice, if I mess up, it's just my neck on the line. You know, I'm taking risks for myself when it comes to liability. In group, it's multiple people. And that's why the policies and procedures become super important in a group practice, right? In a solo practice, they're important because they're required for compliance, but you can still make sure you're doing things properly, your behaviors are proper, without them, as long as you can keep in your head all the things you it need to do. It does make sense. If, if make there sense is a breach on a group level, so if someone in a group practice does something that is a breach of HIPAA, how does that impact the entire group, all of those folks that are working at that group? Mm -hmm. Well, their their workplace is impacted, right? Um, the, the the practice becomes liable. You know, Now, the, if the individual commits a, commits a violation that's egregious, the individual could potentially have individual penalties, but that's really rare. Like what it is, is the group has penalties. Like the group has to deal with an investigation. Uh, the group has to pay any fines. The group has to do remediations. Um, and so the thing is, if you're a clinician, like a, like a rank and file clinician, right? You're not a supervisor. You're not the owner of the group. Um, it may not actually directly impact you unless you Which care about the group do. you work at. Right. And if you care about his health, then it impacts you. Yeah, exactly. Right. If you don't, it doesn't necessarily impact you. And so that's actually a big thing when we work with groups and group leaders is that's why we talked a lot about culture with them, because the 
like having a security risk management program is an important thing to do, not just ha like taking some policies and saying, hey, here, here are our policies. We don't actually follow them. That's actually really dangerous to do. Like if you're going to do security, you got to make it a culture. Right? You got to make sure people are on board with it or at least understand the culture that you're working with and make sure that your risk management program responds to it in a culturally competent manner. Right. You know, one that actually, you know, if you got people who are just going to be really selfish and really just don't care, then you need to, your culture needs to make it clear what the um, sanctions are and what this, what's the discipline that's going to occur if someone violates policies. Uh, if the culture is much more cooperative and people are earnestly cooperative with each other, which is the case in a lot of group practices, um, you, you want to make sure everyone knows that there is, there is a, you know, schedule of discipline, but we're more focused on let's all do this together. Let's all learn together, you know, and that works great uh, with our people in a lot of group practices. Um, but in some others, you need to respond to it differently. So the culture is For really For you, important. it's kind of uh, building it from the bottom up instead of just implementing these procedures um, or not even implementing them, coming up with policies and procedures, filing it away, and then hoping for the best. It has to be an implemented part of the day-to-day -day yeah. practices to make sure that you're continually staying in compliance. Yes. So the the thing with um, a, you know bottom up or top down is it, it's really, I'd say you want to do both, Right. Because like one thing about policies and procedures is that it's got to be clear that everyone has to follow them. And if you don't, there are consequences, right? Now, like that sounds really stark, right? And, and hard. But the thing is, um, if you're running a group, part of being a leader is knowing how to uh, put in boundaries, you know, and, and make ha have an understanding of what's acceptable and what's not without it being about being an authoritarian. Like we, in our business, we don't like to be authoritarian. And I don't, blame us, right? Authoritarianism sucks, right? Um, but the thing about being a leader who, also, who, who has to tell people when, you know, where you have to discipline you because you violated something, you know, that's part of being a leader is being able to do that in a way that's still loving, but still does the discipline because the, the system, the group needs it. You know, it's, you know, I'm, you know, I tend to come from a family systems perspective a lot. You know, it's kind of like if parents just let their kids do anything, regardless of how healthy it is for them or how healthy it is for the family, um, that's no good. Like you need to put in boundaries. You need to help kids understand what's acceptable and what's not. You know, and, the, and if there needs to be consequences in order for that to work, to get out there with consequences. Mm -hmm. We don't use corporal punishment. We don't get nasty. We don't yell. We don't spank, right? Because that's not helpful, right? Uh, but we do make sure there's boundaries and there is discipline. Um, and you, if you're going to run a group effectively, you know, and I don't just mean that's in a way that's HIPAA compliant. I mean also in a way that just makes sure it can actually function. Right. You need to be able to do that. Or if you can't do that, which not everyone can, you know, you bring in people who help you do that. That's the nice thing about running a business is, you know, if you if, if, if there's something skill you're missing, you can hire someone. <laughs> right. And I've definitely known group leaders who've done that. They've done a great job of bringing in people who can help them with the leadership tasks. And so they run really well. Um, but that's a, that's the thing about HIPAA compliance in a group. Right. You got to have that. You know, you got to take on those leadership roles. You got to turn towards some of those kind of harder responsibilities um, and you got to develop the culture. But if you do so, it's completely worthwhile. So talk about that. Tell me about um, what happens when clinicians, either on the private practice level or on the group level, implement these procedures in the way that you're recommending. What can they expect to experience? Oh, sure. Okay. So on, the, on a solo level, um, what you can, if you actually implement all the procedures that you would need to for HIPAA compliance, the things you'll experience is one, um, you find that, you know, you can't really let up on your behaviors, right. Or your expectations. Like, you know, that you have to leave things in place. You have to safeguard them. Um, but that's usually not the biggest for a solo person. That's usually not that big of an issue, um, for a group practice that can be an issue because there may need to be leadership, like leadership may need to spend energy on ensuring that people aren't slipping or, um, um, drifting, you know, to, to use that term, I don't know you're an ethics person, you might be familiar with that concept of like someone learns what the standards are and they're, they're good about it. You know, they're, they're into it, but then over time they're just sort of, then we just let them go and they start drifting away from the standards core, you know, start doing things their own way in ways that violate standards. And we don't know they're doing that because we're not watching. Right. So leaders in group practices, you'll find you need to do some of that. And it's not because someone's being bad. It's really important to understand. This has nothing to do with saying someone's being bad or good. It's actually just normal human behavior, uh, especially for professionals, because we're independently operating professionals. Right. That's how we go. That's how we operate. So if you're not watching and helping us stay together and helping us avoid drift, 
then people will do that. And that means things like making sure people come together and do training together or do security reminders together, which is one of those things you'll end up doing. You know, about every week or so, you give people a little, some little reminder about something about the security program. You know, maybe just a couple, like a few minutes uh, at a meeting or like a one paragraph email that reminds people, hey, if you get emails that look suspicious, don't click any links in them. That's a security reminder for avoiding phishing attacks. You know, uh, you need to do things like that. Um, also on the administrative side, in a group practice especially, there's some annoying tasks you end up having to do, like um, occasionally checking into, and by occasionally, I mean like weekly or monthly, uh, looking into like your practice management system or your email system and looking at the logs to see who has accessed them, uh, just to see if there's anything suspicious happening. Like, uh, you know, did, you know, Elizabeth was away for a week, but someone was logging into her account. Uh-oh, <laughs> we better ask Elizabeth if that was her, you know, because it may have been that she's been hacked. You know, one of the standards does require you to do things like that. That's probably one of the more annoying things uh, that you have to do. But most of what you have to do is just things like making sure everyone stays together with the standards, the leadership tasks. Um, you need to do security reminders. You need to do backups. Got if it. you need to do and backups, what are some kind of some real uh, hands-on tips or techniques that professionals can use to secure their electronic devices, just things that they need to be keeping in mind that you might see oversights with? Yeah, sure. So I'll tell you, by the way, we have an article on our site that's got a, a, a checklist right, of, of things to do with your device, but I'll give you the big ones. Uh, the big one right now, if you are listening to this and going, oh God, I'm getting ethics training anxiety, which people do after ethics trainings, right? Um, if you're getting that, I want you, by the way, to not take any action until you until you feel calm again. But here's one thing you may do before you feel calm again, and that is to encrypt your computer. All right, so your, your smartphone may not need it. If you have an iPhone, it's, it's, it already encrypts. You just need to set a strong password. And that's a whole other thing. That's for another time. For your computer, like your laptop or desktop computer, uh, you want to activate its full disk encryption. And that the reason for that is, one, it's easy. And it doesn't get in the way. It doesn't interrupt your, it doesn't change anything about how you use your computer. Right, everything works exactly the way it did before. It's just now it's encrypting, right? Um, the other, that's one reason why you should go ahead and do that. The other reason is that it's like the ultimate insurance against any type of liability if that computer got lost or stolen. Because if the computer is running full disk encryption, it will qualify for HIPAA's safe harbor from breach notification. What that means is like if like like I'm I'm actually talking to you with my laptop. It's the same laptop I use in my practice. So it has client information on it. It's got protected health information on it, right? So it's but it's full disk encrypted. So as long as it's not stolen while I'm logged in and the screen is open, because if, if that happens, people can just get in and use anything they want. It doesn't matter, it's encrypted. But if it's turned off, you know, like it usually is, and they got lost or stolen. I would just document that it was full disk encrypted and therefore the confidentiality breach is impossible, right? According to the safe harbor in HIPAA. And then I just say, okay, so I don't have to do what the breach notification rule talks about. I'm done. I just document that it was full disk encrypted. There's no breach. I'm fine, right? No process, no investigation, no legal fees, right? All I had to do was turn on full disk encryption and I avoid all that, right? So that's why I say, if you want to do one thing, do that. And if you have a Macintosh, it's just a matter of going into your security settings and clicking a button. Um, if you have Windows, uh, if you don't have the Pro version of Windows, many people have the Home version because why would you buy? Why would you pay extra money for the Pro? Because you hadn't heard me tell you that you need encryption yet. That's why you did. <laughs> but like, um, you want you might need to upgrade to Pro, right? That costs about a hundred dollars. Um, but if you have Windows Pro. And that's Windows 10 Pro, Windows 8 Pro. It doesn't matter which number. It's just Pro after the number, right? Then it's just an issue of going in, into your settings and turning on BitLocker, turning on the encryption. Um, so there are these simple. different things that you can be doing with, say, a computer or with a phone to protect against a breach notification. Talk a little bit about what a breach notification is and what that really means for a clinician when the, the bad thing happens. Yeah. Right. So, okay, so it starts with what we call an incident. And I want to I wanna go to that because I don't want people to get um, unnecessarily scared of this, right? So like, it starts with what we call an incident. And that means something happened, something came to your attention that makes you aware that you might have a security breach. 
So examples of incidents are uh, you lose your computer. Um, someone tells you that they're getting weird emails from you and they think maybe your email's been hacked. Um, you, uh, you realize that you, know, you come into the office and the, uh, you realize that a folder full of client files have been left out all night. Um, there's various kinds of things that make you go, okay, there might be a security breach here. And so we call that a security incident. And so the incident starts off what you have to do, which is to investigate the incident. This is required by the rule. You have to investigate the incident. HIPAA gives you 60 days to investigate. You should know, Elizabeth, because you're in California. Uh, California law only gives you 15 days to investigate because every state, by the way, has its own data breach laws. They, they're, they're similar to HIPAA's rule, but they all have, they all have them. Um, and so like what that, luckily for a, a solo practice, 15 days is usually plenty, right? But HIPAA gives you a lot of time. So what you have to do is determine, like answer some questions. And HIPAA has a four point rubric for this, which uh, if you go look up on our site, we have an article about breach notification. You can find the four points in there. I won't go into details about them here, um, but that's there like, for you to find. Um, the, what you need to do is based on that four point rubric, try to determine if um, any protected health information was actually disclosed or misused by some third party who's not authorized. So actually disclosed would mean there actually was a confidentiality breach. Misused means someone was able to make use of your information in a way that's not authorized or not legal, right? And here's the kicker about the investigation. Once an investigation, sorry, once an incident occurs, you know, once you realize that a security incident has happened, the onus is on you to prove that there was not a breach. And this is very different from if the onus was for someone else to prove that there was a breach. And I'll say that again. You, it's not that someone else has to prove that you had a breach. It's that you have to prove you did not have a breach. And this is actually part of why we see a lot of these notifications. Because um, if you can't prove that you didn't have a breach, what the law requires you to do is to send notification of the fact that there was a breach to every client who might have been impacted. Now, if I lost my computer, right, and I don't have a record somewhere that says, these are the names of all the people who have protected health information on that computer, right? I don't, I don't have something like that. I lose my computer. Let's pretend I have not hardened my computer. So I go, oh crap, someone can open up my computer and see all those like super bills I've made and letters I've written and things that I have on there, right? And so I have to figure out which of my clients are impacted by that. And if I don't have a record that tells me exactly which clients are impacted by that, here's what I have to do. I have to notify all my clients, all of them ever. And so we, I send out a bazillion letters to people saying, you might have been impacted by this breach. And I don't know, Elizabeth, if you've ever gotten a letter from a hospital or a credit agency or anything else saying, you might have been impacted by a breach. Yeah, I've gotten like five of them, <laughs> right? So apparently mm -hmm. every thief in the world has my social security number, I guess, right? The problem with these is that because like you have to notify everyone who might have been impacted. And if you don't know precisely who was impacted, you have to notify everybody, like you increase the net. And so it's really onerous for us if that happens, right? It can be expensive to do all that notification. Um, and then of course, everyone receives this letter that says you might have been impacted. I don't know. Sorry. All right. So it, it sucks. It's not fun. Um, and so that's why I really encourage people to to do those those practices where they try to prevent violations and prevent security breaches, because you know whether you're complaining or not, you just don't want to. I have think to also the notification itself. Not only would it feel bad for us to do it as providers, yeah. but I think it could absolutely impact the trust that you have with your clients for them to to wonder. In such an intimate relationship like well, counseling or therapy, it, it it's a little bit different than a credit card number, which is still violating enough. But if it's something so intimate, I can see how it could even impact the therapeutic process. Yeah. Yep, very much. And that's actually why I, I try to tell people, like, if you're if you're unsure about whether you want to do all this, imagine just imagine your favorite client and imagine having to sit in front of them and tell them that their record got stolen by somebody. It would and you be know uncomfortable to say the least. <laughs> It's yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I mean, do this for them. You know, even we all have different things that mobilize us, and most clinicians are very maladaptively mobilized by 
the way HIPAA enforces stuff because it's so, punishment or it feels punishment. We, we don't like it. You're right. Words like hardened when we, we want to talk like that. about things that are soft and vulnerable. Um, tell, tell us about <laughs> how one goes about making a plan um, to mm-hmm. be in compliance with a HIPAA security rule. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the best way to go about it is to get information about what you need to do, right? That's, you know, it's a nice, simple thing, uh, It's but it really is where we have to start because I'd say um, there's a lot of bad advice about what you have to do. Uh, it's people, often it's, sometimes it's from people who have good intentions of trying to be helpful by minimizing something. But unfortunately, what they do is give poor advice about what actually needs to be done. And so a lot of our colleagues end up being push-pulled through this process a lot. They're just constantly frustrated that they don't know what to do. Um, so I'm, I'm going to go ahead and and be selfish, but it's the best advice I have. Go to my website, go to personcenteredtech.com and um, go under under resources. We have a bunch of articles, just free articles. Go to the article on HIPAA or the article series on HIPAA. It, it's, there's a curated series of articles that take you through the basics right, and tell you these are the things you're supposed to do. Um, and we have an article, it's not in that series, but we have an article that describes all the things you have to do to harden your devices. We also have a lot of information. We have these reviews about different services you can use to, to fill in your, your needs. You know, what a, I need a phone service. I need records. I need this. Um, we have a bunch of reviews that tell you which services out there uh, are going to meet your HIPAA needs and your risk management needs. And so you can pick services there. Um, that is a DIY way to, to figure out what you need to do and then get it done. Uh, we also have membership services wherein we supply. So it sounds like the first step is evaluate really what you need to be doing in order to be in compliance, identify those oversights, um, do, do a lot of research about what actually needs to be implemented, and then start kind of going down the list to make sure that you're implementing that in a way that is, um, that is sound, that is compliant, and doesn't kind of unnecessarily spin, spin your wheels. What's exactly. what are your tips for yeah, making this transition into yeah. a HIPAA compliant practice as smooth as possible? Uh, first tip, really importantly, is work on it when you're not feeling anxious about it. Um, and like, uh, I know, uh, this, there's no visuals, I can't show this, but most of us know the Yerkes Dodson law, which I love teaching about because it's just like a like it's not even a bell curve; it's just an arc on a graph, and it's like this complicated law. No, but like it's just an arc on a graph. But it's like a graph of like your anxiety versus your performance level. You know, it's just like we do in therapy. Like we want people to be in that sweet spot in the middle where you're adaptively mobilized by your anxiety, but you're not flooded by it. And my experience is that people get flooded real fast when they start working with this. And so you need to work on it when you're not flooded. If you're feeling driven and pushed and pressured by it. I know that pressure is telling you do it now and you want to do it and you want to give into that pressure and you want to tell that part of you that it's going to be okay. I'm going to do it now. That is a terrible time to do anything, right? Don't do anything in that moment. Like don't do anything right after listening to this podcast. Don't do it. All right. Unless it's to encrypt your computer, I'll let you do that. Right. Um, or, or to call us right to get help. If that's, if that's what you want to do, call us to get help and we'll wait until you're ready for that. Um, and the reason why is because you want to do this holistically, you want to make sure that the action you take is actually meeting your need. And that's why I was happy you said uh, you want to make sure you're making processes that are compliant, but don't spin your wheels. If it spins your wheels, you're going to make things worse. And a lot of the time you end up being less secure, right? If you're actually doing things reactively, if you do it proactively, intentionally, you know, you just, you just figure out this is what I need. And here's a solution that's going to fit my needs and is compliant then you're going to do great. You're going to have a very easy time hanging on to compliance. You're going to enjoy your practice. You're not going to find it to be a big pain to be compliant and secure. Uh, and it might take extra time. It might mean you're going to be in a sort of non-secure state for an extra month, two months, six months. It's better to do that and get it done right than to rush into it. Because if you rush into it, you're probably going to make your security and compliance So you're talking about worse. people acting from a, a state of anxiety, which absolutely being a law and ethics trainer, I see exactly the same thing, that I say something and then people get really freaked out. Um, and, and understandably, because we want to do things right. And it's really important. But you're saying the importance of making sure you have a plan in place and yep. then yep. really doing it in a way that's metered and logical mm-hmm. to make sure you're meeting the need. Um, what are some other pieces of advice that you have um, that can help people implement this. So 
I'm trying to think like, you know, boots on the ground. We're talking about making sure that you are yeah, setting up your computer yeah. correctly or that you have the right it's passwords on your phone. What yeah, are yeah, other yeah. kind of practical tips mm-hmm. that you see people might forget or that you think need, you know, can be done easily that people can get started and consider these, these components? So the thing I, I know part of what you're asking me for is like actual checklist items. Uh, and the reason I'm not just giving them is because there's so many of them. <laughs> like there's a big list. So I'm just going to tell you about like where to get the checklists. Like, so I'll, but I'll tell you that. And then some of my actual items, right? So like the, um, so for that, that basic level uh, for talking for solo people, people in solo practice, um, if you want to do that, if you want to start getting started on that thing where you're not violating HIPAA, not necessarily where you're complying, but just where you're not violating, which can actually get you really far, right? Uh, on my site, you need to go search for them, but there's one article that describes how to harden your devices. There's another article that describes all the features your practice needs technology for. Like it lists all the things you need to cover, right? So it lists like, you know, make sure you got something for records, make sure you got something that handles client desire for texting, something that handles email something that handles fax, something that handles phone service. Like it's got a checklist of that, right? And then look at that and go, okay, what do I, how am I covering these things now? And how am I not covering these things now? And then make a plan from there. So I'll give you some specific tips for like, what are the things to cover that are probably most vital, right? So the things that are most vital is you want to encrypt everything, all your devices. Like you want to get your devices encrypting, like I described earlier. Like that's really, really important. It's also really important that your devices be handling viruses well. Now that's a, I won't get into all the details of that because you got things like um, iPhones and iPads, you don't have antivirus. They do a different thing. With Android phones, you can install antivirus. Um, for If you have a Macintosh, yes, you need antivirus. <laughs> like Apple will tell you not to, they're wrong. Um, that's just kind of their... That's just what kind of one of their PR things they've been doing for a long time, uh, telling people they don't need antivirus. Um, so like, but also you don't need like super complicated fancy. You just need to make sure you've got something. And I don't, and I'm not talking about compliance. I'm talking about actually protecting yourself and your clients. You know, you need to have something in place. Um, I know it's a, it's a funny example, but it makes a lot of sense. It's very similar to just making sure you're using a condom. Right. Um, and I don't mean you need a super fancy one. I mean, you just need to make sure you're using one. Right. It's very, very similar. You know, the difference between using one and not using one is enormous. Right. So it's the same thing here, you know, with antivirus and anti malware and stuff like that. And the same thing with encrypting your computer. Same thing with having strong passwords. Um, and I'll tell you, uh, strong passwords are actually less important than not repeating passwords. Like when you use different passwords on different sites, that's a much bigger issue than whether they're strong ones. Um, and the so using different ones, though, is really hard. It's impossible to remember them. So what I highly recommend you do is use password management programs. Like, I don't know, Elizabeth, if you're familiar with things like LastPass or Dashlane or 1Password, those are becoming pretty popular programs. Those, I highly recommend you use one of those. Like that's the best way to make sure you have different passwords everywhere. Because having a different password everywhere you need a password is probably more important than making sure they're all strong. But if you're using a password management program, all of them can be ridiculously strong and it doesn't bother you at all because you don't have to remember any of them or type any of them. That's what these programs do. Um, also, you know, when you can use the two-factor login, you know, where like the site you're trying to log into sends you a text message with a code and you got to type in the code, that whole thing, use that really valuable. Like that is what you need. Like things like that are what you need to prevent being hacked. Um, so if you have a Google account, turn on the two-factor. Um, if your practice management system lets you do two-factor, you know, with the, with the code and everything, definitely do it. Super important. Thank um, you. Those That's are my very, top very tips. Helpful. You know, for things that it really sounds like a lot, of, these a lot things, of security problems. There are parts that, of course, that are more complicated, but some of these things are are pretty easy to implement. And even for those of us who aren't covered entities, we can be doing that and protecting yeah. ourselves and protecting our clients and taking that extra yeah. step. I think we could probably talk much, much longer about these topics. I know Absolutely. I have so many more questions. Um, I, I'm imagining some of our listeners do as well. Um, tell us more yeah. about how to reach you, <laughs> uh-huh. any websites that uh, you recommend of of good resources, things that you found helpful, and let us know how our listeners uh, can reach out to you if they have other questions. 
Yeah, just go to personcenteredtech.com. Uh, info at personcenteredtech.com is how to contact us. We also have a phone number there. Um, we have lots of CE courses, but we also have a membership program and a telemental health certification program. Um, if, you, if you're unsure about any of it, just call. Um, our people are happy to talk to you about everything we do and, and help you figure out how to use it best. We're happy to do that. Um, in terms of other sites that are good, um, I mean, honestly, ours is designed to fill in the gap of there not being good sites out there to help with this. Um, there are lots of sites to help with HIPAA, but they're not for us. Like they tend to be for people like me who have a tech background um, or they're just for like medical doctors or something. Um, I can tell you a, a good, a very helpful site though that everyone, that can be difficult to use if you're not a technician, but but nevertheless is loaded with resources is HIPAACOW. And that's H-I-P-A-A-C-O-W.org. HIPAACOW.org has an enormous number of resources. Um, so even though they're very technical, because there's so many of them and they're so valuable, it's worth at least going there and knowing what it is. Roy, thank you for your time today for all of these pieces yeah, of advice. You. I think you've given our listeners a lot of, of practical information of how they can start taking these steps and also some guidance of how to come up with a plan and implement this as a culture change, not just policies and procedures that go into a filing cabinet somewhere. Um, thank you again for your time. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.